This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. For this episode, we're speaking to journalist Nilu Tabrizi. She's going to be speaking about the protests that erupted recently all across Iran. Now, they started when the government put the fuel prices up massively, but that wasn't really why everybody was so angry and why they were protesting. That was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Over 200 people have been killed and the protests so far have been crushed. The internet was cut off for 10 days as well. So Nilu is going to explain to us what happened in that time and tell us what she's seen since the internet came back on and a lot of evidence came flooding out to journalists. Please do consider supporting us on the Patreon for bonus episodes at patreon.com slash popular front. All right. Um, so I guess maybe let's let's go back to the start. Um, how did these protests kind of break out across the run? I know it's not spontaneous as some people think and oh it's because of the fuel thing i know it's been mounting but what was the straw that you know broke the camel's back i guess it, it really was the fuel announcement and it was because the government announced it so abruptly so on midnight on friday so after a thursday parliament session after most iranians had gone to bed uh, rohani's government announced an abrupt decision to cut fuel subsidies and what it was supposed to do was to increase increase cash handouts to the poor but this move also just sent gasoline prices skyrocketing by 50%. And so this, this protest really uh, was a response from poorer Iranians who've already been impacted by inflation and shrinking budgets for the past year. And the government stood firm behind its move. It said, you know, we're trying to go from um, fuel subsidies to cash handouts. The Supreme Leader stood firm behind this move. But people were incensed. And so within 72 hours of the announcement, Iranians spilled into the streets in cities across the country, towns across the country. They did things like, you know, shutting down major highways in places in the south of Iran, for example, that are like important port towns or important petrochemical producing areas. And then it, the, the protest shifted. So it went from being about fuel. And then you could see some videos coming out of the country where people were calling for, you know, an end to the Islamic Republic, chanting death to Khamenei in different demonstrations across the country. So that's that's really what sparked it. Um, and the protests went strong for for a few days. And then the government response was quite was quite swift. Yeah, well, maybe you can explain how big the protests were. You know, I saw that within, what, like 24 hours, it felt as if they'd spread across the country. I mean, is that accurate? That's accurate. And again, it's, it's really hard to verify independent information from Iran about these protests for two reasons. One, because there was an internet blackout. So as soon as people started pouring onto the streets about a couple of days after the fuel announcement, the government imposed a near blackout of the internet. So my family group chat went silent. I couldn't reach many sources. Um, so you have that. And then on the other side, you have a lot of politically motivated dissident groups that were pushing their own information because they want to take credit for the protests and call for an end to the regime. So you have this kind of thing happening on both sides, making it really hard for us to know exactly the size or the number of casualties. But yeah, it spread across the country. It was in you know the country south and in Arab minority areas. It was in Shiraz, Esfahan, Tehran, in the north. Like it, it was really nationwide. Right. And what was the response from the regime? 
So based on what we're seeing right now, it was it was it was pretty swift. It was quite violent. Um, and so there were right now, I think Amnesty International is saying the death toll is about 208. So it was a pretty violent crackdown on the regime's part. And and again, it's hard to verify these casualty numbers, but that's a lot. I mean, if we're thinking about it in context, in the 2009 protests in Tehran uh, about you know Ahmadinejad's reelection, uh, I think it was something like 70 or so people were killed in a, in a span of 10, 11 months. So 208 people being killed in a few days of unrest is a huge number. And this this is what right now people are characterizing as the the deadliest protests in the Islamic Republic's 40-year history. Wow, okay, I didn't know that. Um, and how, how are they killing them? Just like live fire or what? Yes, yeah, so we're getting reports of live fire. Um, in some videos that we've seen, you're seeing kind of snipers on roofs. And again, it's really hard to verify this video and we can get into that, but that's it is live fire. That's what we're hearing. Right, yeah, maybe you can you can talk about that, you know, like your job is quite difficult right now. Like you say, you're having to verify things. I think the internet was shut down as well, right? Like how, how are you working out what's real and what isn't? So a little bit about the internet blackout. So again, within a couple of days, the, the government imposed a near total internet blackout. This is not uncommon. The internet has been shut down for periods during unrest. This internet blackout lasted 10 days. So it was quite frankly suffocating. Um, and so I was trying really hard to get in touch with sources. No one was talking. None of my normal sources were talking because everyone was really terrified because um, this was just a, such a swift and, and brutal crackdown. Um, so that was happening. And then as well, you know, this blackout lasted for, yeah, for 10 days this time around, which is, again, unusual in this kind of in, in the context of protests in the Islamic Republic. So that was happening. And then when I'm looking for footage, so I work on the video side, I'm looking for footage to document what's going on. A lot of it is being pushed out by these, you know, opposition groups that are fashioning themselves to be the alternative for the Islamic Republic, trying to take credit for the protests and trying to go about regime change. So a lot of footage is coming out, uh, being pushed out by MEK channels. So that's Mujahideen Khalq. They're that fringe dissident cult um, that was one of the first groups listed on the U.S.'s FTO list, foreign terrorist organization list. And so they are in Washington circles. You know, they lobby the government. John Bolton used to go to their annual conferences before he became national security advisor. He took $60,000 from them. Giuliani still goes to their conferences, went to one this year. So they're very much trying to be in the establishment and fashioning themselves to be the opposition. So a lot of footage is coming out from them. And obviously we have to verify everything. And these groups do have a history of pushing out old footage and saying this is of this current protest. So they do have a history um, of kind of purporting that this footage is relevant. So I just we just have to be very careful with verification, extra careful when it comes to Iran because of these politically motivated dissident groups. And then you also have stuff coming out from monarchist channels. Um, so that's like another thing to look for. And then there's also footage coming out from folks who are U.S. based that are calling for regime change, like Iranian Americans who have now kind of become a part of the Washington establishment. So there's just like a lot of checks we have to do, and it makes it super challenging to figure out exactly what's going on. Right, you said about uh, MEK there, you know, I, I vaguely know about them and their strange little uh, compound in Albania. Um, yes. You said they're like a cult, like, how do you mean? So they are, a lot of experts call them a cult uh, because they do things like forced divorces. Um, 
you have to take vows of celibacy. If you have sexual thoughts, you have to like write them down in this diary and perhaps present them. All these stories come out of, of how this group functions in, in their compound. Um, and, you know, it's, yeah, that's kind of the character of their group. The State Department called them a cult. And the only reason they were, you know, taken off the FTO list was, so I spoke to the ambassador who worked um, at State at the time for a previous story during the time that MEK was delisted under Hillary Clinton. And he said, we didn't delist them because their activities had changed. They were still doing things that we would define as terror or cult-like, but we delisted them because you know, after the Iran-Iraq war, where they were, you know, fighting on Saddam's side against Iranians, they kind of went to this compound there called Camp Ashraf. And after Saddam was toppled, the, you know, they were kind of seen as these like vestiges of the Saddam regime. So you had the new Iraqi government kind of trying to attack them. And the U.S. said, well, if we don't do something with this group, it's going to be blood on our hands because they're in the situation because of the U.S. invasion. So they had to delist them in order to put them somewhere. And Albania was the only place that would take them. <laughs> that is yeah. insane. It's very Hillary, isn't it? <laughs> it's super, it's super interesting. They're a super interesting group. I mean, John Bolton took $60,000 from them, which he disclosed when he was becoming NSA months before he became the national security advisor who's speaking at their conference and said, we will celebrate next year in Tehran. So they're a very interesting group. They definitely are cult-like. Um, there's a lot of reports of people trying to leave and, and not being able to. Um, and yeah, they, they really lobby hard on, on Was in Washington. They have very interesting relationships with both Democrats and Republicans. And even Canada's former prime minister, it's, it's very interesting who they have. Because if you don't know the history of their group, what they're saying doesn't sound crazy, right? What they're saying is down with the mullahs, we're the democratic alternative. But then when you go and see, oh, well, during the 70s, they killed, you know, at least six Americans and tried to bomb American companies in Iran. You know, it, it starts to add up once you look at the history. Right. Um, and what about you mentioned the monarchists? I'm not familiar with that. Who are they? Yeah, so monarchists are just uh, kind of like a loose group that want to bring back the glory of Iran's monarchy. So they fashion themselves behind the, you know, the last king, the, the last Pahlavi king's son who lives in D.C. right now. Uh, his son makes regular appearances on like, I think, BBC Persia, Iran International, um, sometimes even BBC saying that I'm, you know, I want to take credit for this country. I want to be there, this kind of thing. Those groups prop them up. They kind of, I think it's, it's almost nostalgia in a sense um, or their real belief who really, it's hard to tell. But yeah, so they, they want to return to the monarchy. Right, so are there any groups then other than like, you know, fucking Bolton with his war hard on or like these weird monarchists? Like, are there any groups that are genuinely like, no, we, we do want a democratic Iran? Because I know the protesters are saying, you know, down with the dictator. But is there anyone that can really step in their place without it being some weird, you know, CIA coup thing? At this point, it doesn't look like there is a democratic you know, an organized opposition. And I have friends ask me about this all the time. Why? Why isn't there an opposition? And it's because, you know, the revolution was super scarring and that's a fresh memory. That's 40 years ago. And so a lot of the diaspora is fractured. A lot of the diaspora hates each other, points to different groups for you're the reason why we have this government or actually we like this government. So it's a really fractured diaspora and it hasn't come together in a way to provide some kind of alternative that isn't the MEK or isn't monarchists or isn't just like this, yeah, this loose, just regime change call.
Right, that's a shame. Um, and in terms of the the protests, you know, I saw some footage of, I think in the Kurdish area specifically, like in Kerman Shah, they were like fighting back. Um, did you see much of that? You know, protesters trying to confront the security forces. I did. I did see protesters trying to confront security forces or, I mean, I think just even hearing the chants death to Khamenei on the streets is, is really bold. Um, and just kind of like hearing that kind of opposition has been really interesting. And it's it's not just protesters. I mean, we've had members of parliament in Iran that are starting to say really interesting things. And again, keep in mind, there's a parliamentary election coming in February. So whether or not they're playing to that, who knows? But there was this MP named Parvane Salashuri in Tehran that this week stood up in parliament and said the Islamic Republic is now a dictatorship in every sector of power, a complete and raging dictatorship. She said that um, in Iran? She said that in Iran. She's a reformist politician. She represents Tehran. And it's just, it's, it's, really, it's really interesting. How dangerous is that for her to say? Like, I, I didn't realize that, well, I, I just thought you just can't say that. You'll go jail like Turkey or something. Like, how dangerous is that for her? It, it honestly depends. With Iran, what's interesting is you don't really know when you've crossed the line sometimes and when you might get in trouble for saying something. So you have to think about the Iranian government's calculus. Are they going to go after a, a, you know, a government MP who's on the record saying things in parliament that, you know, is her opinion and respecting and, and kind of like representing her voters? Like, I don't know, because there's so much international attention and they're not going to say that. Are they instead going to go after journalists? Are they instead going to go after protesters? Because it's, it's Iranian society is a little bit more open than we think, but we don't know where the line is when it comes to how the government's going to respond when people test that. Um, but I talked to journalists, some of my friends who are reporters in the country, and they're, they say things like, we can't report, like we can't do anything. And there's some... Iranians who have who are Iranian journalists who've tweeted about I'm trying to file this story my editor's not taking it I can't talk about what happened in X city so there's suppression happening for reporters for sure but it's been interesting to see how members of parliament are kind of standing up right um, and what was the the Iranian response obviously they would have said something about the protests on TV I imagine it was you know completely partisan to the government but what, what do they say about the protesters? Uh, it's interesting. I, I've been watching a little bit of Iranian state TV to see what the response has been. And it's, it's kind of shifted. They've started uh, in one instance. They said, oh, you know, they looked at one town where there was a lot of unrest and they said, everything's fine here. And then they put out another news package that started with this like music. That was this like dark, spooky music. And they were showing pictures of the protests and they were showing like BBC Persia's news packages, Iran International's news packages, you know, these like, you know, media, international media reporting on Iran. And they're saying like, this is what they're saying is happening, but we're bringing you the real story. And then they say that, you know, people who are protesting here, they're, they're external groups, they're, they're terrorists, they're not even of the local population. Um, and so they, that's a line sometimes they've gone with. Um, other times they're saying like, you're destroying property, but it's, it's interesting to see how they've been crafting their message. Um, and I suspect what the U.S. the U.S. has been saying about the protests is going to be pretty damaging for Iranian protesters as well. In what um, way? So Trump has come out to say, like, we support and stand by protesters. Brian Hook last week gave a press conference um, about Iran. 
and he said, people were asking him about the internet blackout, and he said, shortly after I came into this role, we worked to get tools into the hands of Iranian people that would allow them to communicate with each other in despite of regime efforts to shut that down. That's obviously super damaging because Iran likes to, you know, that's kind of their thing is, oh, these protests are being caused by outside forces. So when you have the U.S. saying, hey, we're giving them tools to communicate, that helps the Iranian government in their case to discredit genuine protesters. And it makes it really dangerous for genuine protesters. Right. Yeah, that that really adds to that kind of, you, you know, you get these normally like white anti-imperialist types are like, uh, oh, it's a regime, it's a CIA coup. But when they're coming out like that, it really doesn't help. No, it, it hurts them. It, it's pretty dangerous. So you have that. And then you have also on the U.S. side, um, the, kind of they're not being super clear on their methodology, where they're getting their numbers for protests. So, you know, Brian Hook said, uh, you know, up up to a thousand people in Iran could have been killed in these protests. And that's a pretty big number. Um, and so, again, it's hard to verify, but the U.S. is pushing out like the top of the top number. So you kind of have this interesting thing playing where both Iran and the U.S. are looking at these protests and trying to craft a story or push a certain part of the story. We're still, you know, as of 10 days ago, the death toll by Amnesty International, which is what a lot of people are relying on, is at 208. That, again, that's hard to verify, too. But, yeah. Right. Um, like we said at the start, the, the fuel tax was... was uh you know, the, the straw that broke the back, as it were. But maybe you can explain a little bit about the, the background behind that as well. You know, I understand there's been unrest for quite a while. I think this is like the second protest this year. I mean, not as big, but, you know, what's yeah. been going on in Iran? Being in Iran right now, if you are a poor Iranian or you're, I mean, they're really the shrinking, if you're a part of the shrinking middle class, it's been extremely difficult. I mean, since the U.S. has put its... Um, it's kind of what it calls its maximum pressure campaign, which the U.S. says, hey, if we sanction Iran enough and we cripple them enough, like maybe they'll come and talk. And Iranians don't see it that way, obviously. Um, and so they've sanctioned, they've made it impossible to do any business with Iran. They've, based, they've virtually halted all of Iran's oil exports and they've made it extremely difficult to get food, to get medicine into Iran, actually, which has been what they say, oh, you know, medicine isn't, is a humanitarian good, we allow it in. But I did a story where I talked to pharmaceutical importers, where I talked to folks with who have chronic diseases, and people haven't been able to find the medicine they need. And you can't just produce, you know, if you have MS and you've been on this treatment for a while, you can't just all of a sudden become a domestic producer and change your drugs. That does not work. There's been a, a huge number of folks who haven't been able to get chemo treatment in Iran. So I know stories of people covertly bringing in chemo drugs that you're not supposed to, but what else are you supposed to do? I've heard stories of people getting anesthesia that's kind of black market anesthesia, that they wake up from their surgery and they're off or they don't wake up from their surgery. And, you know, and not having medicine being readily available only emboldens the black market there, right? So you've just had this immense pressure on, on Iran. You know, people, just inflation has been crazy. The, any kind of purchasing power you've had is down. Um, the price of meat is super expensive. I think I read somewhere that it's something like 10 euros a pound or something crazy like that. Like it's just things get more expensive every day. 
And, you know, you go on this, there's this website, it's called Divar, which is like Craigslist. And you go on it and you see what Iranians are selling. And you can see they're saying, I'm selling this for Mohajarat, for immigration. People are selling family grave plots so they can try to leave the country because the money they had in the bank six months, even a month ago, is, is just like the value is plummeting to a point they can't do anything and leave with it. So they're trying to sell everything they can. That's the case for a lot of people. So it's just this immense pressure on people, especially young Iranians. I've spoke to journalists who said, I can't work. I've been able to work in the past year. I'm unemployed. I have like this kind of education. I was educated in the U.S. I can't do anything. I'm just I'm stuck in this limbo. So there's a, been a lot of pressure for Iranians. And so while this fuel tax sparked it, we can we know in these protests it's been about something bigger. Um, so it's just been it's been extremely difficult with U.S. pressure on, on Iran's economy that, you know, it's, it's obviously there is issues of corruption in the Iranian economy, but the sanctions have been absolutely crippling. Well, yeah, I was just about to ask that how much of that is because of the sanctions and how much is just, you know, the regime just fucking about basically not doing things right. Uh, I've been talking to, you know, experts who look at Iran's economy and are, you know, people that I interview for stories about sanctions. And they do say overwhelmingly it's been on the U.S., how the U.S. has chosen to apply its sanctions regime. Because there's a couple of ways you could do sanctions, right? You can look at the case of Venezuela, where the U.S. says, okay, we're going to sanction this, this, and this top person. Cool. These are the bad actors. We don't want to sanction the people. So you can do that. But with Iran, they're sanctioning everything. They're sanctioning its central bank. They're doing secondary sanctions, saying, hey, Netherlands, if you want to import drugs with Iran, like how are you going to do these interactions, these, these banking transactions with Iran because we're sanctioning every way that you transact with Iran's banks. Like they're sanctioning every level of it. And it's been it's been an immense amount of pressure on people. So, I mean, I don't want to speculate too much, but to me, that sounds like it's America's way of trying to force some kind of regime change or protest without actually getting their hands dirty. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you we've we've asked, you know, in the past, I've asked the government, you know, the U.S. government, what they think. Oh, are you pushing for regime change? Are you doing this? And they come on the record and they say no. And they repeat for the record. They do say this. You know, we're not our policy is not regime change. Um, again, their policy is we want to cripple Iran, put maximum pressure to bring them to the bargaining table. And Iranians see this as super disingenuous. They say we already made a deal with you. And like under the tenants that you couldn't even stick to the original deal. In what world do we trust you to actually work with us? And it's also a point of pride for them. Like, we're not we're not going to cower to the U.S. And the U.S. is doing this. They're not doing this with the, you know, the public support of other countries like this has been the U.S. pushing sanctions. Europe is still somewhat trying to work with Iran in the framework of the nuclear deal. Um, But it's really the U.S. has been pushing these sanctions on Iran. Right. Well, then with that in mind, how come the protesters are all shouting death to Khomeini, like death to the dictator? Because uh, there's a lot of videos where they're doing that. You know, it, it's not some kind of made up thing in the media. Um, you know, you would have thought if, if it was so much on America with the sanctions that they'd be more angry with America. But certainly I did see quite a few things this time around where, you know, people were like blaming him more than anyone. Right. I mean, they're blaming him. It's not just him. Again, it's this a member of parliament in Iran's government who also is called the Islamic Republic a dictatorship. They're blaming the supreme leader because he comes out and, you know, Rouhani couldn't pass this fuel move, this subsidies move, without the support of the council and without the support of the supreme leader, right? So at the end of the day, Iranians know that the supreme leader is is 
if he supports it, it's happening. So because he came out and supported what the government did, um, and people kind of hold him to account for some of the violence they've seen on the government's part, that it's natural that they would be blaming that because it's like people on the streets aren't going to sit there and, and wave their finger at the sanctions regime from the U.S. They're going to wave their finger at people who are being killed at the hands of police forces and, you know, the IRGC or, you know, different units. So that kind of makes sense. How powerful is he, you know, the supreme leader? What is it like? What's his role exactly? He is the guardian of the revolution. I mean, what he says still goes. I mean, he you can't really do anything without the support of the supreme leader in Iran politically. So he is still that powerful. Yes. And I think people have been wondering for a long time, like what what's going to happen with the next supreme leader? Who's it going to be? What kind of supreme leader is it going to be? Is it going to be someone who's still conservative and close to the West as he is. So that's also a question. But I mean, he's for now and for the foreseeable future, he's still going to be leading the country in that way. Hmm. Um, so they've said now they've basically said, yeah, the protests are over. Is that true? Like, are they over? They've been crushed. What's happening? Uh, from what I'm hearing, they have definitely petered out. This It was a really strong period of a few few days protests and, and protests happening after, but it, there was pretty swift response by the, by the state. So the actual in the streets um, is kind of back to normal, but people are still really pissed off by what happened. So um, I don't know what, what's going to happen next. I, it's just, it, it's a lot of, I mean, you think about it, if you put yourself in, in their shoes, like this is a lot of pressure they faced I'm sure it'd be really terrifying after you see 200, you know, reported 200 people being killed. Like, what does that do to your appetite to protest again? I'm not I'm not sure what's next for Iranians who are really dissatisfied with the government. What about the prospect of like militant groups? You know, there was an attack, I think, this year or maybe last year. I think some kind of separatists. Um, You know, how how possible is that in Iran, do you think? Iran is is actually pretty safe in com- compared to its neighbors. It's pretty stable. So when you have these attacks, it's kind of um, it's definitely un- unusual. The security apparatus in Iran is, is pretty strong. So it's 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 helpful for situations like this for keeping security and, and you know, keeping these groups out of there. But I mean, we'll we'll see these groups have always kind of existed, especially like on, in border regions. They've kind of existed. Um, so we'll see. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of unsure what the, the future looks like for separatist groups and for attacks inside Iran. But um, yeah, it's definitely that's definitely the fear of that is something that the government really speaks to in terms of like we need security, we need stability. And for a lot of Iranians, despite how terrible this, you know, they, they might find the, the government for them. Security is, is a main is a main thing. They don't want to become Syria. They don't want to become Iraq. So until there's some kind of alternative, which who knows, like security is, is really important to Iranians who live in the country. Yeah, of course. Um, OK, Nulu, is there anything else you think we should we should cover before we wrap this up? I think we've covered it on this one. It's again, it's been really hard to figure out anything what's going on in the story because local media can't report. It's hard for us to report from here, uh, from outside of the country. So it's been a challenging one. But yeah, I think that that's that's mostly it. Um, if, if people want to you know, follow your work and get in touch with you, how can they do that? You can follow me on Twitter at Antabrizi. And that's mostly where I live and breathe is on Twitter. <laughs> right. Do you want to spell that as well? Yes, it's N, uh, T as in Tango, A, B as in Bravo, R, I, Z as in Zulu, Y. Okay, brilliant. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Jake.
That was Nilu Tabrizi speaking about the brutal crackdown on the Iran protesters. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, keeping everybody informed about, you know, the niche details of modern war and underreported conflicts, please do consider supporting us on the Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash popularfront for bonus episodes, narrated articles, all sorts of bonus content. You get all of our video stuff before anybody else. Um, you can get access to the Discord, which is turning into this massive hub of research. Yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's definitely value for money there and it supports us and helps us keep going without any proper corporate backing because this is all 100% grassroots independent. Another way to support us and look cool in the process is buy our merchandise and it's not any tit for tat bollocks like Teespring or any of that shite. It's proper, we have a uh, champion um, windbreaker jacket right now, the away day, uh, t-shirts, hoodies, all good quality, all, all sorts of stuff at www.popularfront.shop. Go there, everything is fairly priced, ships worldwide, um, yeah, it's all good stuff. Please do remember to subscribe and hit the bell on YouTube. We do documentaries as well. Uh, YouTube.com slash Popular Front. The second part of our Hong Kong protest documentary is now up on the YouTube. So go and watch that there. The third part will be out in about a week, maybe more. Um, but that will be the third and final part. Uh, again, sorry it took so long to get all that out. But, you know, it's kind of just me really doing this. Um, so in future, I will definitely be hiring a editor. You know, I can edit, it's, it's all right, but it's, it just takes me too long with everything else. Also follow us on the Instagram, instagram.com slash popular.front or follow the backup, uh, instagram.com slash popularfront.co. We have a backup because we keep getting banned. We got banned three times in the last two months. And last week we got banned twice in one week. Every time Instagram comes back and says, oh, sorry, you were deleted by mistake. There's no safeguard really to stop it, you know, um, because we've applied for verification and they deny it. They say you don't have enough followers. We have nearly 30,000 followers on the Instagram and there are many accounts with less than a thousand followers that are verified. So, you know, it's bullshit. Basically, you have to have a kind of corporate media backing you to get the verification um, or play ball and be like an influencer and put pop culture shit out there. They don't really want to verify, you know, grassroots independent conflict journalism that's kind of taking the piss out of mainstream media quite a lot. You know, it's understandable in a way, I guess, you know, like zombie scum of like Zuckerberg, you know, you can understand why he runs his business that way, but whatever. But yeah, Instagram.com slash popular.front. We put stuff on there that you just won't see anywhere else. Just like all random shit, like uh, updates with news, um, all the merchandise designs go up there. Yeah, it's, it's a good community on there as well. Like we actually have probably the worst comment section on the whole of Instagram, but it is it, at the same time, it's kind of a like good community on there. It's, it's hard to explain. Um, oh yeah, oh shit, also this episode was sponsored by the thedefensepost.com uh, Defense with an S, check them out um, Been sponsoring us from the start They do uh, articles regularly about the world in conflict uh, Definitely check them out, really uh, good team um, Yeah, Thank you to the following Patreons for making all of this possible They are Adam Bergsnyder, Axel Iverson, Azad, Brian McLaughlin, Chad Walker 
Christopher Martin, Craig Miller, Dan Dunham, Daniel Shearer, Diana Gorvanek, Eloise Larson, Emiliano, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, Frank Austin, Jack Mayhoff, James from the Discord, Joanne Stocker, Joel Tambusi, Joss, Joss, Josh, sorry, uh, Juan Hernandez, K. Hardy Roberts, Lawrence Abrahams, LH, Lika Madik, Moody Al Rashid, Noah, Ari from the Discord, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormack from What Bitcoin Did, Q-Ball, Russia Al-Akidi, Rohan Abare, Rubicon, Ryan Sandercock, S, if you want you know, a name, please do put it on there, otherwise S is fine, Skytoon Music, Sebastian from the Discord, Sentry, Surushe Hawazi, Steven Davila, STV, Tom Lochrin, Tony Bin, Vida Provost, and Zachary Hinch. Uh, thank you very much. The Patreon's doing well now. It's at the point where I can do mostly, I'd say 90% full-time on Popular Front, which is just brilliant, you know what I mean? It's really, in two years nearly, we've got to this point. So I think that's excellent. Thank you very much to everybody supporting. The more we make on the Patreon, the more Popular Front there will be for everybody. Um, obviously, I have a lot more time to do this now that the Patreon's doing well. Um, so yeah, thank you very much. Please do send it about, spread it, patreon.com slash popular front if you don't want to you know sign up monthly there are one-time donations um popularfront.co slash support you'll see it all there bitcoin one-off things to the paypal uh yeah and again the merch popularfront.shop music in this episode the intro was by home and the outro was by my mate sam black also known as son of old his SoundCloud is soundcloud.com slash sun dash of dash old 